Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. For this episode, it's important to observe that the Clark Healings Fund showcases Healings' life and work as an example to today's artists and offers them a comprehensive art business education so that they can thrive as he did. We'd like to start out by thanking the incredible community of supporters of the upcoming Clark Hewlings book, who are backing ongoing in-depth research into Hewlings' art legacy and enduring value. A brief announcement, Elizabeth Hewlings is about to kick off a series of virtual events with guests that dive deeper into how Clark Hewlings maneuvered through the art world while staying true to his vision. Also, later in 2021, we're looking forward to our next virtual art business conference. Stay tuned to the Clark Hewlings Fund website at clarkhewlingsfund.org for more details. Now, our guest today is writer James D. Balistrieri. Jim specializes in American art catalog research and writing, as well as estate and collections management and acquisitions, marketing and communications for museums and auctions. Jim is interested in art and storytelling in a wider sense. He is currently writing a book about Clark Hewlings. Jim has a master's in English from Marquette University, an MFA in playwriting from Carnegie Mellon, and was a screenwriting fellow at the American Film Institute. Jim served as director of J.N. Bartfield Galleries in New York for 20 years and has published over 150 feature essays and reviews in a wide variety of national arts publications, most recently in Antiques and the Arts Weekly. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Jim, I'm going to dive right into uh, the burning question about Clark Healings. So you're writing a big book about Clark Healings, the namesake of the Clark Healings Fund. And as much as we all know that the fund exists because of him, maybe we don't know the whole story about who he is, his work, and his legacy. And I know you can't tell the whole story in one shot. So briefly, who was Clark Healings? Clark Healings was an American artist, a realist, uh, in a way. Um, he began his career as a very successful illustrator during the golden age of illustration, which came to a close in the 1960s as more and more photography uh, came to be used in, in magazines, publications, paperbacks. But Clark Hewlings, by that time, had already really begun to make the leap to easel painting. And the thing that sets him apart is the subject that he found chose and really made his life's work and his life's work is depicting work um, working people in working situations whether they're whether they're farmers laborers whether it's a, an urban setting or a village setting or a rural setting what he captured and what he wanted to capture was working people at work doing what they do and that sets him apart from almost any other American realist of that time, um, most of them were much more interested in historical works, whether it was the history of the American West, as so many of Clark's peers, or other kinds of works that, that were involved in history. Clark was interested in working people in their here and now, whether he was in Europe or Mexico or the Southwest. So, Jim, uh, I want to follow up later in the show about what it means to focus on work as a theme. But let's dig into the process of getting this book to market. I have a just a question about that, which is 
How are you working in the research process with uh, Clark's daughter, Elizabeth Hewlings, who is also the executive director of the Clark Hewlings Fund? So Elizabeth uh, is the first one. She approached me. And, and the wonderful thing about Elizabeth is she's both organized and encyclopedic, particularly when it comes to her father. Um, I, I don't know how many people know this story, but Clark, you know, basically said to her, uh, you're going to be my Theo, meaning Theo Van Gogh, who not only is the, the, the great, you know, the brother of Vincent Van Gogh and the letter writer, but the executor and the, the keeper of his flame and legacy. And so Elizabeth is really a wealth of information and, and has provided me with you know, Clark's letters from when his first trips to Europe and some of his, his drawings and images of, of canvases that were partly finished to show uh, his process. I mean, so, you know, timelines and images going all the way back to some of his earliest works. So, I mean, when you're working with someone like that, there, there's a certain easiness about it. You're not, you're not having to sort of run around and, and dig through archives. She is the archive for this project. Well, so let's ask a little bit about what that archive contains. Um, as you've been researching, you and Elizabeth Hewlings have been thinking about broader topics beyond any individual artist. You're examining how an artist becomes internationally known and what it means to, you know, quote, make it as an artist. So are there people who, for practical purposes, are missing from art history as we know it? And if so, why? There are people who are missing, interestingly enough, and there are people who were in, who are out, or who were in and then left the canon or were, were ejected from the canon, so to speak, and then reemerged. I mean, I'm thinking of even someone who is as famous a name as Albert Bierstadt, who in his lifetime was probably the most famous American artist in the period around the Civil War, and sort of saw his own star wane as he got older, and then was somewhat forgotten and neglected really until after the Second World War. But it isn't until the 1950s, 60s that you start to see the first retrospective exhibitions and monographs and so forth on him. So he's an excellent example of someone who was in while he was alive and then is almost forgotten and then is sort of rediscovered. And, and that's, you know, that pattern um, persists, uh, not only in American art, but, but in the arts in general. But, you know, if you ask me about, you know, making it, and I think that's a fascinating topic. And, and as I was thinking about where Clark is sort of positioned, where people see him versus where one sees him when one really begins to dig into his art. And, and I think they're, they're really a couple of different places. Um, I think that uh, lots of people associate him with American Western art because he lived in Santa Fe, because he was, you know, a member of the National Association of uh, Academy of Western Artists and showed with many of those artists, he sort of thought of that way. But really, the, the amount of, or the number of paintings he did that could be called Western or Southwestern is minuscule compared to the number of paintings he did in Mexico and Europe. So there's a whole idea that Elizabeth and I have talked about, which is about repositioning Clark Hewling as an American artist and indeed as an international artist. Uh, so Jim, why are some people darlings in a kind of star system in the art world loved by tastemakers while 
other people with arguably similar talent are not? It's a great question, and I'm not sure it has a specific answer. I just finished writing a piece on uh, Juan Gris, who was one of the great founders of Cubism with Picasso, Brock, and Leger. And as well-known as he is, as famous as he is, there's a new exhibition of his which really talks about why he's not a household name like Picasso. And there are a number of reasons for this. There are a number of different factors. And one has to do with He died relatively young, so he didn't have as much time to sort of grow and develop as an artist. He was Spanish, so he lived in France, like Picasso. But a lot of his work suffered because after he died, the Spanish Civil War came along and World War II and Franco, and there was sort of a move against Cubism and modernism in Spain, and the sort of Spanish art world was, was really rather wrecked after that. So you can see that Sometimes it's not even whether an artist is good uh, for whatever kind of loaded word that means, but it has to do with circumstances as well. So it's it's a hard question to ask why some are in and why some are out. You know, earlier you mentioned Theo. So when when I think about Van Gogh or an artist like Vermeer, are those good examples or, or what are some historical examples of how famous artists got to be famous? Well, Van Gogh is an excellent one, I think. Because when you really dig into his life, you realize, and his work, that when he died, he really wasn't a poor artist. He was on the verge of of getting there. He he had a dealer and and people were becoming interested in him. And, you know, shortly after he died, Theo dies not too long after. Um, And there's a retrospective. And then there's slow burn of scholars who are interested and collectors begin to be interested and we're talking about the, he dies in 1890. It isn't really until 1924 that the first sort of psychological biographical piece on him is written. And that sort of sparks an interest in, well, who is this guy? And those first essays were all about, well, who did he paint like? Well, why did he like Millet? Why, uh, Millet? why did he like Vermeer? And they're, they're much more scholarly in intention. This first sort of biographical, psychological, as it kind of gets into the man and he becomes sort of more, more interesting. By 1934, the novelization of his life, Lust for Life, comes out, which, of course, in the 50s is made into a film, the Kirk Douglas film. So there's a progression there, this sort of scholarly interest, collectors. And there's one more really important piece of that puzzle. There's a, a, an all but forgotten American artist named Walter Pache. And he had studied in Europe with, with he knew Monet and he, he knew um, uh, Duchamp. And he was responsible for bringing a lot of those artists to the famous 1913 Armory show. In the 20s, he gets interested in Van Gogh. And he starts to lecture on Van Gogh at museums and to collectors. And he writes a little book. So what has to happen is, is you see by, and in the 1930s when he publishes his small monograph. But with many artists, there's a kind of slow burn after their passing. Uh, and it doesn't happen to everybody. Somebody's got to pick up that torch and carry it. Um, that's the truth. So a more on-point question, specifically touching sure. the audience, can artists get themselves into the canon or should they care? They can't and they shouldn't try. 
Uh, I'll tell you a quick story, and this will sort of illustrate that. Uh, when I was working at Bartfield in the gallery, uh, often on Saturdays, um, particularly as we got toward the summer, they were very quiet. And one Saturday I was there by myself in the morning, you know, having my egg cheese and egg and cheese on a roll, uh, the New York breakfast of champions. And a guy comes flying in the door and he says, I have an appointment with the owner. Well, firstly, I know that he doesn't have an appointment with the owner. He can't because the owner isn't there. And I knew he wouldn't be there on Saturday and he hadn't been in there on a number of Saturdays in a row. And I said, no, he didn't have one. And he says, I'm a player. And as soon as he said, I'm a player, I knew he didn't have an appointment and I knew he wasn't a player. So for an artist to say, I'm in the canon or I should be uh, themselves would be bad to me. It would sort of say, really, why? It would automatically put people on the defensive about it. So I would say no. And they really shouldn't care. They really shouldn't care about being in the canon, about making it. They, they, they should do what they do, which is what Clark Hewlings did, which was work at their work. Um, and the interesting thing about Clark and his, his subject being work is that my take on him is that he saw himself as a working artist and his subject was work. And so there's a, there's a really nice sort of mirroring there going on with what, what his practice was like and what he painted. Uh, funny, two side comments about that. Yes, the egg on a roll is the New York breakfast. I'm in New York. And uh, I, you know, I've gotten away from it. There's an Italian shop near me with bombolinis and they, yeah. they've lured me away. But you can only eat so many bombolinis before you're shaped like one. And at that point, right. uh, it's it's back to the egg on a roll. And uh, I just love exactly. it. There's nothing better uh, yeah. than a New York roll. No. The other point is you're kind of channeling a little bit of Ron Burgundy uh, in Anchorman who said, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. And of course, uh, you know, we, the, the implication is he's not. You could choose any number of quotes from the outgoing president as well about, you know, uh, being, yeah. being a hugely big deal. And <laughs> are you then? Uh, so yeah, exactly. I think that self-conscious self-awareness is... Uh, something that I'm I'm hearing you say is not fruitful to an art career if you're focused on getting yourself in the canon, as well as just saying that you couldn't get yourself into the canon even if you wanted to. That's not quite how it works. Right. So that right. leads me to a follow-up question. So you told my producer of the show, Penelope Thomas, the awesome Roz to my Frasier that makes all this possible. Uh, that the cannon needs to be, I'm quoting now, the cannon needs to be spike full of cement and blown up. Uh, so what did you mean by Correct. that, Jim? What, what did that mean? It, to me, it's, it's your, your question sort of lead me right to that answer, which is that if nobody knows exactly how somebody gets into the cannon or gets ejected from the cannon or is not allowed to be in the cannon, then what good is it? So my feeling is, what you want to spike the canon with is so many artists that the canon no longer has meaning, that it is spiked, it is blown up, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and what we're seeing now, if, if you think about it in the arts, is, you know, a correction in, you know, what are all these forgotten and neglected women artists? What about these artists of color? They're not in the canon and look how good some of them are. And wow. They were never even considered for the canon. You know what I mean? So it becomes 
I'm hoping it's, you know, sort of the, an atavism, you know, an appendix that we can just do without, you know, some kind of organ that we might have needed at one time to sort artists and art, but that maybe we don't need anymore. Well, uh, you know, let's play devil's advocate for a second, Jim. Uh, If we were to toss out the canon, wouldn't we lose quality control? I'm not sure about that. I wonder if, in fact, taste might actually make a comeback because it would be something we would argue about instead of something we assume. But what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, people drop names like Van Gogh or uh, there's a big, big, you know, right now there's, there's sort of a, an industrial complex, a Frida Kahlo industrial complex, right? And people drop those names and they, well, you go, oh, well, they're talking about somebody famous. You know, but nobody sort of challenges those ideas. And then there's just a lot of silence about everybody else. So it it, it might actually encourage more discussion if there wasn't an assumed canon or canon at all, because it, we'd actually have to be, you know, arguing, uh, debating, uh, uh, making our case. Well, all right. So we've talked a lot about this i'm gonna pretend i'm not gonna mention the canon again and then i'll do it again in a minute (laughs) (laughs) it's like telling somebody i just have one more question you never it's you can't just take one so uh it's a new york one more question uh but i'm gonna ask you i'm gonna ask you a parenthetical question uh can we learn anything now these days from how journeyman artists or perhaps you know if we don't like that phrase then regular, everyday, non-famous artists, sometimes we call them at CHF middle-class artists. Can we learn anything from how they've made a living in the past? Oh, absolutely. And I've thought a lot about this in terms of Clark Hewling and, you know, his training as an illustrator, right? It made him and really in a generation of artists into working artists. I have a friend who actually went to school with Clark and represented him for many years at Barkfield named Carl Hantman. And, and, you know, he would tell me, well, we did everything, Jim. We did, we did comic books. We did, you know, newspaper ads. We did what, whatever came in, paperback covers, whatever came through the door, movie posters. Um, so this idea that uh, more this sort of rarefied romantic idea about artists um, is another idea that, that actually needs to be examined and maybe thrown out. Um, because the history of art, at least of, uh, American art and art in general, is the history of artists scrambling to make a living in a number of ways. And if it's okay, I, I'm going to give you an example I thought, thought of him today. Um, really, the first famous American artist, transatlantic, is an artist named Benjamin West. And he was, you know, like, like his biography, right? He, was, he showed some talent as a child with his pencil. You know what I mean? That's how all these biographies begin. And he did. And, and, and people saw him and, and he really had a talent. And, but his whole idea is, how am I going to get better? And how am I going to make a living at this? So he comes up with a fantastic idea. Now we're talking about the 1760s. Okay. This is, he's here. And he, and he starts to look at books and he's like, you know where I need to go? I need to go to Italy. I have to get to Rome. If I really want to study, I got to go there because that's where the art is. I got to get to Europe. So what did he do? He starts to talk to people. He says, you know, I'm pretty good 
artist and I can copy art very well. So if you give me some money to go to Europe, I will copy some of the artwork there and I will bring back those copies for you, right? Because they don't have access. There's no internet, there's, no, there's nothing. I will do paintings, I will do drawings, wherever you like. He actually solicits subscriptions and he gets people to do this. And he makes his way to Rome. In Rome, he is looking at a sculpture and there are some English, British folk there. And he makes an offhanded remark and he says, wow, that looks like a young Mohawk warrior. And one of the people there who's British says, what are you talking about? Strikes up a conversation. The next thing you know, he's in Britain and studying in London, these people. And by the way, the other thing is, he makes sure that he does all those paintings for those people who subscribed. So he fulfills his obligations and contract. While he's there in, in London, he's learning, he's picking things up. He starts to see that what's the prevailing thing back then? You want to be a great painter? You have to do mythology, big canvases of mythology. At the same time, the Seven Years' War is going on here, the French and Indian War, we call it. And there's a, you know, the, the great last battle, the Battle of um, uh, And uh, General Wolfe, the British general, dies, but the British win. And of course, we're still colonies then. British win. And he says, eh, I'm going to change this. I'm not going to do a painting of some mythological thing or something from Greek and Roman history. I'm going to take all those techniques and apply them to current events. And I'm going to paint the death of General Wolfe immediate hit right engravings prints his career is taken off uh, then now he's moved he's not only moved the goalposts he's picked them up and put them in the parking lot for everybody else to follow and he's got engravings going and he's got right so that so, so you're talking about an artist who's sort of thinking his way through in an entrepreneurial way as he's improving as an artist that's just one example. I, I, I could go on, but I won't. Well, it, it makes me wonder, do artists ever, you know, that we talked about getting into the canon and, and I, see, I told you I'd bring it back around. Um, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I was waiting for it. But do, do artists ever get uh, kicked out or expelled from the canon? They do. They do. And, and it usually isn't, isn't always artists, but it, it can be a kind of art. Um, it's something I've noticed. It's very interesting just since I've been in this business, is that there was a great deal of interest in what I would call French military paintings. Uh, Messonnier is, is, is maybe the most famous painter. Uh, and, and he did some famous paintings of, of Napoleon and the troops. Um, and then there are others, Byrne, Bellacour, and, and a number of others who did painting during and after the Franco Wars, which at one time, were extremely popular and brought a lot of money. And, you know, that, that's, only, that's a measure of popularity, but it shows that people desired them. Um, and I've noticed in the last 10 years or so that they've really just fallen off the table. Nobody really talks about that art anymore. Um, it, it may be that we're just too far away from those points historically. It may be that the, the kind of style of realism, which was a strand of its own, while the Van Goghs and the Monets were going, is just no longer considered great art. Um, and 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 it may, you know, he can make a comeback. Uh, artists like Bierstadt have, but I would say, you know, 
Nobody writes about it. Nobody talks about it. So it happens. Well, so if you take those those ideas together, the difficulty of getting in, uh, the possibility of being booted out, the efforts of working class artists or, or more accurately, middle class artists um, to make it regardless of the canon. Aren't there artists that are not particularly favored by tastemakers that have been successful anyway, creating their own galleries, finding their own collectors, being successful outside the canon, you know, an artist that, uh, you know, if the salon in Paris didn't let him in, they just gave it the finger and kept going. That's it. That's true. And, and, and that you really see that with the French impressionists when they're denied entry into the academy, the jury academy shows. They have their own. And, and, you know, they call themselves the Salon des Refused, the Salon of the Refused. There's a, a long history of being excluded and of exclusion becoming almost a, a sort of a, a, something you can use. You know what I mean? It's become a, a, a badge of honor, if you will. Well, uh, you know, I'm a, a fan of Towns Van Zant. Uh, and for people that don't know, he's a singer, songwriter, musician who um, is incredibly prolific, uh, was, I'm sorry, incredibly prolific, but never achieved the glamour of a Willie Nelson or an Emmylou Harris. Right. Uh, but he wrote an enormous number of their songs. And when he died, uh, the PBS tribute uh, was hosted by a dozen household names in Americana music. And they observed that he was... A, a musician's musician, a force in a larger right. movement uh, to whom they all owe a debt. So I'm wondering if there's an equivalent concept in fine art or, for example, such a thing as, you know, a painter's painter, a sculptor's sculptor. Sure, there, there are quite a few. And the Clark Hewling's teachers, Riley and Bridgman, Frank Duvenek, uh, who ran, you know, really ran the, the art school in Cincinnati um, and others, they, um, uh, J.P. Murphy, they, they really are painters, painters. And it's interesting because outside of those of the circle of artists who admire their technique and who learn from them, some of them directly, their own works are just not, not highly uh, prized um, or widely shown. And it, it's interesting it, to, to kind of go back to the, the Juan Grease thing that, that I was uh, just finished writing. One museum curator observed that Juan Gris is often used to explain cubism because he's so mathematical about it. But at, at you know, at the, how should we call it, at a cost to appreciating his art as art. So I was like, oh, he's the cubist's cubist. And I have begun to wonder about that, about, you know, that, that's a good thing in a way. Um, it can often make for a, a life. Uh, teaching and, and, and being an epitome, as it were, but it's not always a guarantee that you're going to be known outside of those circles. Hmm. Uh, so about halfway through the episode, uh, that was the biggest segment I wanted to get into, and I want to switch gears right. now to um, asking you about Clark's move from illustration to easel painting as there are some things there that the audience I think will find applicable. So Clark made the move from professional illustration to fine art and specifically easel painting. How did Clark Hewlings achieve that transition and become established as an easel painter? 
I think you start to see his paintings uh, uh, in Europe um, on his on his journeys there, and you you start to see that he's not thinking about them in terms of illustration anymore. He's thinking of them in terms of what he's seeing and something he wants to communicate about what he's seeing. And it's, it, there's a larger world that he wants to explore. I think one of the interesting things is that he does a very good job sort of scoping out, you know, where he wants his art to appear. And he scopes out the, the Grand Central Galleries, the old Grand Central Galleries, New York. They lived in New York. And he says, my stuff belongs here. And he's persistent about it. And you know, the story, which is, it sounds apocryphal, but it's not, is that he took a painting there and one of the directors of the gallery, I believe, you know, criticized him. He was like, nobody wants paintings of laundry and, and Catholic cathedrals and old women. And somebody walked in and said, how much is that painting? And he was off. So, but, but he knew that that was the right place for him. He did his homework. And I think that's really important for artists is, is to know when they're submitting something for a show or for a gallery, to do the research, the homework ahead of time. Is this, is this likely to be a place that would be interested in my work? Um, you know, he's very methodical about making that transition. Um, and I think that's, I think there's, there's a lesson there. So I understand that Clark had specific reasons for developing relationships uh, with certain galleries that were sort of targeted. Was that predicated on right. some specific research that he did? I think it was, I think what, what he was good at was knowing not only where his audience was, but where it might be. And that comes from, you know, doing your homework. I, I'll give you an analogy, right? There are many authors who will say something like, you know, 400 copies of my novel, you know, before I got published. And my, my feeling, and this comes from my background as a playwright, if you sent out 400, I bet less than 10% of them would actually have given your work a look because it's not the kind of work they sell because they don't have clientele for it, because it's not what interests them. My feeling about Clark Ewing is that he was always sort of thinking ahead of it like that and say, no, I'm, I'm not gonna waste my time with X, Y, and Z because they aren't, they aren't gonna be interested in what I'm doing anyway. So I'm gonna go there where, they, where, where ooh, there are some other painters there that, that, that I like and who I admire and, and there's some stylistic, you know, resemblances and so forth. And, and that's kind of where I'm going to pitch my tent. So it, it's obvious. And in a minute or two, I want to ask you, I want to switch in the final segment to asking about uh, Clark's, uh, the, the work themes in Clark's work. But it's obvious that, uh, it's obvious from Clark's work that travel was integral to his process. So what do you, what, yeah. what's the inside lens? What do you know about um how travel uh obviously extensive travel how what why that was there i think for him travel and if you look at his paintings you can see it it was a way for him to find places and i would use the word traditional places 
where the traditions of work and of life were on a long continuum, let's say. He seemed to be very interested to me, not only in showing, oh yeah, those women are, are washing clothes in the street today, but in showing that the place around them was a place that had been inhabited for a long time so that what they were doing was on a long continuum of existence, a kind of deep time. And, and those, you got to travel. And, and if you read his letters and if you speak to Elizabeth, you got to go down roads other people don't go to find those kinds of places. And this is why it's interesting because there's a whole tradition of travel painting where there are paintings of the famous places, paintings of Notre Dame, paintings of, you know, the Ponte Vecchio, paintings of this. That's not what Clark Ewing's is about. You know, the first painting that really attracted me to his work is this small painting he did of Naples. And it's this narrow street, narrow. You couldn't even get a car, one car down there, much less two. And they're deep shadowed and the laundry is hanging across it. This is not the Amalfi Coast. This is not some famous resort. So it's not only travel, but it's travel of a particular kind that really uh, attracts him. In order to find the kinds of places that Clark Hewlings wanted to find, you, you have to go down the roads that are not traveled. You have to get off the tourist path to see what he wanted to see in order for him to paint what he wanted to paint. Yeah, you know, um, if you go to the Ponte Vecchio, I've been there, and take a look at it for five minutes, you're going to see three painters sitting outside on the steps. <laughs> you know, like they're painting it in front right, of you, right. literally. You know, it's been done. It's sort of like, you know, do, does the world need another? Yeah. Uh, everybody has the right to to paint their own sunset, but does the world really need yeah. another painting of the Ponte Vecchio? Um, so uh, I think by now it's a paint-by-numbers option. Uh, no, no right. slouch to people that have done it. I mean, you there's all, no, if no. it inspires you. But... Uh, that brings up sort of another issue. And, and prior to talking about the work themes, I want to situate us in time. So mid-century fine art had all kinds of uh, things going on at, at that time. Uh, sure. Pop art, uh, abstract expressionism and other things. And I'm interested in, you know, where did Clark fit into that scene? I think where, I mean, if you look at his work, you can look at it and just say, Oh yeah, that's very, it's very realistic, right? And you can say, well, that's not what pop art was doing or that's not what, what others were doing, uh, the abstract expressionism and so forth and so on. And yet, when you get closer and you start to really dig in and you look at, you know, the strokes and the colors and that mosaic patchwork, you know, tiled effect that he gets, there's a whole lot of overlap between his practice and the practice of mid-century modernism. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, to me, misinformation about the rivalry between schools. And, and you hear it all the time. Oh, that's abstract. Oh, I love that. That's realistic. Or I'm not really interested in realistic. I'm interested. As if they're sort of, you know, camps throwing mud balls at each other. Um, and, and it isn't true. Um, the, many of those artists worked in different forms uh, at different times. Uh, many of them were friends. Many of them learned from one another. Um, 
so it's it's not it's it's much more fluid than um, at least popular art history would would make it. Um, uh, you know, Elizabeth told me, you know, Clark Hewings played tennis with Frank Stella. I mean, that's a great story, right? And you think, well, Frank, what did they have to talk about? Well, maybe they just talked about tennis. But in order for them to get there, there has to be some kind of respect. Uh, where I'm standing right now is about, oh, less than half a mile from where the artist, well, Kent lived. Who's, you know, a modernist and a tra traveled all over the world. But Norman Rockwell, right, the Saturday Evening Post guy, he lived in Rocksville, just down the road, and they used to get each other's mail. And they would meet for breakfast and exchange mail. And they respected each other greatly, greatly. So <laughs> I think there's a lot more to be said about the the fluidity of things. And I'll just give you one more example that just sticks in my mind all the time. There's an artist named John Atherton. He's not that well known anymore. He did a lot of Saturday evening post stuff. He did a, he did a lot of realistic work. Um, I, I know him very well because he, I'm a fly fisherman and he was a fly fisherman and, and he wrote a book and illustrated it and used a lot of artistic principles to tie flies, which interests me greatly. But he thought of himself as a surrealist and he showed with Man Ray and those guys at the Peggy Guggenheim Gallery at the same time. And he basically said, I, I am what I need to be at any time, whether I'm doing a calendar or whether I'm painting a surreal uh, consideration about the Second World War or something, you know, whatever, wherever I am, that's where I am. And I think that with Clark, you know, to want to put him into us, any kind of silo uh, is probably mistaken. It's as mistaken as thinking of any of those artists in terms of one form or genre or another. That probably give you too much there, but there it is. Well, you talked, uh, you positioned rivalry as a bit of a myth uh, in genre, but um, looking specifically at realism, and, and Clark is arguably a, a realist painter, um, sure. though there are obviously elements of lots of different, not necessarily realist um, genres and styles in his work, but overall realism. Did realism lose its cool or cease to be cool uh, back in the mid-century? Because you certainly get a lot of that vibe in various quarters. You do, but but you get that vibe, but I think it, it doesn't go away. It just goes elsewhere. I mean, to me, is there anything more real than Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup Can? It's everyday reality. It's the reality in your pantry. Uh, it, it speaks to um, advertising and to marketing and to product and all those things. But what's interesting is it also speaks to to an economic, how shall I say, to to an economy uh, in the way that Clark's paintings of working people going about their lives who are just as invisible in their way as the Campbell soup can in your kitchen. So uh, I think that if we really sort of step back and take a, a broader look at it, the Campbell soup can and Clark's paintings of people, you know, working to sell melons in Mexico, it's not that different. It's not that different. It's making the invisible, the unnoticed, the taken for granted, visible. 
So getting into the the final part of our show, um, I want to revisit something you brought out at the beginning, which is that um, obviously Clark uh, portrays work as one of his central or major themes. And when we say work, uh, in this case, I would observe it specifically hands-on work or uh, physical labor, physical labor. So why is that? We get that we can see it consistently in his work, but why is he doing it? I think the whole thing is, again, it's the idea of making the invisible, the unseen visible. And so what do you do? You look at these people. I'm thinking about one of the books that he did the cover for, which I think is amazing, is a book by Ignacio Siloni, a novel called Fontamara. Uh, and it's about uh, peasants in, in southern Italy, where Clark painted. And in the preface, Siloni says, you know, all people of the soil and of the earth and workers are the same. It's as if they're in a nation wherever that nation is, they're all different as individuals, but they belong to, 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 to what he called a nation and a nation of people who are not noticed much, who work very hard all their lives, but who each have a kind of inner life that we don't know anything about. And the interesting thing about the way Hewlings portrays workers, these people is that he doesn't really give you a story. They're not narrative paintings. He's, he moves in his easel painting as far from illustration as you can imagine. You see these people working and you wonder what they're thinking and what they're like and what their inner lives are. But he sort of gives them their privacy. He allows them that. He doesn't want to tell a story with it. If you want to tell that story, that's fine. But that story that you tell probably is going to say more about you than it is about the people that he's portraying. And I think that's what interests him, is that the idea that here these might be people we don't notice, who we might think of as, you know, working class people, simple people, people with, you know, with their, and, and yet when you look at them, you know, you know they have a whole rich inner life and inner world that we are not going to get to. No, in here. He leaves that mystery, that unknowability there, which many other artists who paint these kinds of genre scenes do not. So they want to tell a story. So uh, do we go so far as to say that Clark uh, glorifies labor or working people? Or uh, would that be, you know, uh, I think some people would, would cringe who regard that as a political um, commentary or political statement to to raise labor and raise working people to a certain point. They might be suspicious that that uh, that this was a primarily political or or social commentary. Uh, is it fair to say that that's true? And and if so, how would they no. be misinterpreting it? No, because if you were to do so, they would either be sort of picturesque and nostalgic, and they never are. Okay. They're always in the present. Um, one thing Hewling did not like was costumes. He, that's why he never really painted Native Americans, cowboys, this sort of classic Western thing. He paints them as they are in the present. And you'll often see these little details. Oh, there's a plastic bucket over there. That's a strange thing to see in this old village, you know? 
So there's always a hint of the present. It's always there. So the other way to go is to make them heroic. I mean, and you only really have to look at Soviet art and the art of communist China to see the kind of heroized peasant, the heroized industrial laborer. Um, Hewing's, and, and that's what I mean by Hewing's allowing that and insisting on that humanity and that distance between the viewer, the painter, and the subject. So he's not glorifying them at all. He presents them. He presents them and he illuminates them. And that's usually how he does it with light. He illuminates them, which I think goes back to his physics days at, at Haverford. This kind of you know illumination that shows the shadows, but shows everything, but doesn't judge it, doesn't put it in any kind of uh, picturesque or nostalgic or heroic box or Marxist box, if you will. It's not any of those. Clarify something. Uh, did this sure. start at a, a particular date where there was a before and an after uh, when this theme of work emerged in Clark's output or, or has it always been there? I think it's there almost the minute he gets out of illustration. It's, it's there. You start to see it. And you start to see it. One of the reasons that I was very drawn to this street in Naples painting is that it has an antecedent um, for it. We didn't know if it was for a cover that was abandoned, but it's essentially the same scene, uh, the same street with a man walking towards you. But in the, the more illustration piece, there's a woman in a sleeveless black dress in the foreground looking toward you. And you get the idea that there is a narrative and you, and you start to you know, create the kind of narrative that you would when you look at the cover of a paperback book. Oh, there's some relationship there. She's waiting for him or she's the daughter and wants to get away from him. You, you have a sort of Fellini moment in the oil painting he does of the same place a few years later as he's really embarking on the easel painting the woman is gone the guy is almost is there but almost nondescript and it becomes it be, the place becomes the subject as it were and the, this person walking becomes a person that we don't know and can't really tell the story about um so that you know that transition which happens in, in the 60s, is, is to me re really interesting, really interesting. So here's it, right? Here's an, an illustrator whose covers for paperback books and illustration are there to illustrate a narrative, insisting on removing the narrative part of the story and just presenting the scene, as it were. Well, you mentioned the 60s, and of course, in 60s sensibilities, there's a lot of political and social commentary at play, and I'm certainly not trying sure. to uh, squeeze a, a square peg in a round hole or make it mean something. But I am curious I mean, if there are connections yeah, yeah. between uh, the seemingly lowercase p political themes in his work and our current wave of civil rights and gender politics. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one doesn't need to be overtly political. You just said small p to be political. and um, I, I had occasion years ago to spend uh, about 45 minutes alone with Seamus Haney, the, the, the great Irish poet, Nobel Prize winner. And I had been in Northern Ireland 
for a number of weeks in the, in the midst of a really tumultuous time. I have family there, and and I happen to get there at, at, a, at a rugged time in the 80s. Um, and I talked to him, and I, I I just asked him, why why isn't your work political? And his answer was, it is political. It is political. It's about the language. It's about the soil. It's about the history. And he said, and all of those things are political. You know, every sword against the darkness is a sword, whether it's a, a, a placard in a march uh, or a, a poem by Haney or, or a painting by Hewling. So really, the simple act, Hewling's simple act of drawing attention to these people and these places is, it is political. It is political. There's a there's a you know a term for it which escapes me in semiotics. It's about pointing at something, and you know just this, this indicator, right? Look there. Don't look at the Ponte Vecchio. Look there, look down the street, right? I'm not judging it. I don't want you to judge it, but I want you to look at it and think about it. And that's what he does. That's what he does. And that has there is an an analog in that to to all the things that are going on in the arts today. Look at the way people are treated. Look, look at it, right? Isn't the internet asking us, watch that. Watch the George Floyd, watch it. Judge for yourself, watch it, look at it. So let's wrap up with a couple of questions. Um, uh, starting sort of back at baseline, why should we care about Clark Hewlings and why now? I, I think we should care about Clark Hewlings because Clark Ewing did, you know, straddled some fascinating moments in American art. Um, and his, his brand of realism is really unlike anybody else's. The subjects he paints and the way that he paints them. I mean, if you look at him, you just go, that's a Hewling's painting. That's unusual in a world, even in his world, where things were very derivative. He really forged a mature personal style of his own and a way of doing things. That's, that is an enormous thing. Why now? Because we're in the middle of a, a pandemic. We're in the middle of a, a racial reckoning. We're in the middle of a, an economic crisis. We're talking every day about how do we get people back to work? What does work like? You know, and we're talking about the new normal and how good was the old normal? And so, our circumstances are doing what Hewling did in his paintings. They're shedding light on and illuminating aspects of our society and aspects of the discourse of our society that we haven't paid, been too busy to pay attention to in a way. So I think that there are lessons to be learned in Clark Hewling by looking at him today. So, is there a different, more precise answer for three different constituencies? Uh, so this is a compound question, Jim. Is, it, is there a different specific or precise answer for artists, for collectors, and for curators and scholars on why Clark, why now? For artists, it's technique. It's the development of that personal style. It is the way he went about his work. Uh, and that's crucial. Um, and, and there's a model there. Um, for collectors, I think Hewlings is one of those artists 
who repays looking again and again and again and again. And that's really what a collector should want in an artwork. You know, I, people often say, well, how do I know that work's going to go up in value or how do I know? And, and the truth is, you really don't. And any dealer who knows, says that he or she knows that is selling something besides art. But an artwork that repays, that you want to look at again and again and again is, is a work that a collector wants. Um, for, for scholars and curators, I think Hewlings presents such an interesting his career, so his, his illustration and, and, and commercial art and his easel painting. But I think that his themes of work and working people and his travels really offer an, an awful lot to scholars and to curators. Um, and it, none of that stuff has really been written about. Everything we know about Clark Hewlings right now is really what he's written. All of his books are filled with his quotes about his art. And so the, the field is open for me, writing the book, to begin to reposition him alongside his antecedents, alongside his peers, alongside other artists who have some of the same concerns that he does. And that's really the hope for the book, is to achieve that. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Jim, visit his LinkedIn profile and watch for his articles on clarkhealings.com and clarkhealingsfund.org. Now, this show depends on support from listeners like you, so please consider giving to keep this show broadcasting and bringing you events and guests like this. Click Give at our website, clarkhealingsfund.org, and for those desiring to sponsor an episode, you can do that at clarkhealingsfund.org slash go slash sponsor. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Jim. It's been really great having you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.